What were the critical events that unfolded in Chile on September 11th, 1973, when Salvador Allende was overthrown? Why did many Chileans admire Allende and why did U.S. power support the coup? How did civil society organizations in Chile and Canada work toward overcoming Canadian government resistance and forge successful solidarity with those downtrodden by Augusto Pinochet? What lessons can be learned 50 years later to inform those active against potential coups in other countries? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are focused on the infamous actions against the first socialist to be elected president in a liberal democracy in Latin America and mechanisms intended to come to the aid of the people of that country. In our first half hour, we speak to former military Chilean Francisco Valenzuela, a supporter of President Allende, on what he witnessed at the time of that historic moment 50 years ago and to fellow Chilean-Canadian Bernardo Jorquera about an upcoming coup commemoration in the city of Winnipeg. In our second half hour, we speak with Professor of Politics Lisa North on the book she edited, which explored Canada-Chile solidarity from 1973 to 1990 and the acts of unspoken leadership performed by many of the churches and unions along the way. On this week's program, Remembering the Other 9-11, Assistance and Resistance to the Chilean 1973 Coup d'Etat. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 8th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We commemorate the damage done as settler initiatives built on broken promises and treaties served to dislocate indigenous populations through colonialism and genocide and seek avenues toward reparation in the present. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The Russians felt that Bismarck's steady influence in Central Europe would be missed. Tsar Alexander III, who had come to the throne in Russia in March 1881, disliked and distrusted Kaiser Wilhelm II, and he believed, with good reason as it would turn out, that the impetuous German monarch lacked the qualities needed to rule Germany. The reaction in France was different. The French held Bismarck as primarily responsible for their nation's decline and defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Bismarck's presence 
in Berlin was a constant painful reminder to the French of their country having been overtaken by the Germans. That comes from the article History, Worsening Relations in the German Empire in the Wake of the Franco-Prussian War, 1871, by Shane Quinn, posted September 6th, originally published on geopolitica.ru. At this point, NATO membership, even if it is a second class, is important not only militarily but also politically. However, geopolitical interests also impose cooperation with Russia. Russia needs Turkey, Turkey needs Russia. While optimistic observers say that Ankara pursues a kind of balance policy, more critical viewers like myself interpret it as a swing policy, that is, a foreign policy of approaching the USA and Russia at the same time, or one at a time. In my opinion, these wrong swing policies have a great impact on the lack of concrete results expected from Sochi. That comes from the article, Russia needs Turkey, Turkey needs Russia. The Putin-Erdogan geopolitical swing in Sochi by Hassan Iral, posted September 6th, originally published on Atasam. In my previous substack about turbo cancer in nurses, the top three were lymphoma, 6th, colon cancer, 6th, and breast cancer, 5. Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 mRNA vaccines can cause, through damage to the immune system, aggressive turbo cancers which often present at a late stage usually stage 3 or 4 grow very rapidly spread or metastasize rapidly and are generally resistant to the conventional cancer treatments chemo radiation conclusion it is shocking to see so many young teachers come down with such aggressive end stage cancers oncologists cannot continue to ignore this new phenomenon of COVID-19 mRNA vaccine-induced turbo cancer forever. That comes from the article, Turbo Cancer. Teachers are being decimated by aggressive and metastatic cancers after COVID-19 mRNA vaccine mandates. By Dr. William Mackus, posted September 6th, originally published on COVID Intel. If EVs were simply government-subsidized status symbols for wealthy liberals who want to virtue signal how they think they're saving the planet, that would be bad enough. But chances are the big push for EVs represents something much worse. Along with 15-minute cities, carbon credits, CBDCs, digital IDs, phasing out hydrocarbons and meat, vaccine passports, and ESG social credit system, and the war on farmers, EVs are likely an integral part of the Great Reset, the dystopian future the global elite has envisioned for mankind. In reality, the so-called Great Reset is a high-tech form of feudalism. Sadly, most of humanity has no idea what is coming. That comes from the article, Three Reasons, Something Sinister with the Big Push for Electric Vehicles, or EVs by Nick Giambruno, posted September 6th, originally published on Doug Casey's International Man. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. September 11th, that's the uh, the date when you'll be the Chilean people and, and their various uh, companions will be commemorating the 50th anniversary of, of the coup d'etat in Chile. Uh, I have with me uh, an individual who's, uh, he was involved in uh, the uh, Allende uh, side of it, and uh, you witnessed the, the, the coup taking place. Uh, he is about 92, 93 years old, and so he's... Uh, He's ready to, to give us a, a good account from from his perspective. Uh, could I get you to introduce yourself and 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 what you were doing um, at, uh, at at that time? Well, uh, my my background is uh, always in the military system. I started as as a young cadet in the Air Force. I became a first lieutenant there. Sorry, your your, your name again? Francisco Valenzuela. That's my name, and uh, as you said, I am 93 years old now, but still I remember very well, very clear, what happened that, that day, 11, September 11. I was there very close to the palace of the government, because I was at that time in the headquarters of the investigation police, not far from the palace, and I was witnessing when the hawker hunters bombing airplanes came down and they started just the horrible noise and the flames and the explosions and I was really devastated to say to be witness of that brutality I never expected that but um, we observed when the tanks were trying to break the door, the main door of the palace, in order to take possession of Allende and the people inside there. Everything I was witnessed witnesses from the terrace of the headquarters of the police. So not only here, I was looking at that. And for sure, it's going to be in my memory forever. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of in terms of the military system, I I have quite good knowledge about the military because I continue with the air force attached to them in the reserve. After I quit the air force, I became also uh, promotions uh, until I became in '73, I think. I was a kind of wing commander in the in the reserve, so I was in contact with um, uh, commanders and colonels and uh, uh, senior officials of the air force. I knew what what was coming. I knew the the plans. I knew the intention they have. They told me very well. We had to kill Allende. Allende is no good for this country and we had to get rid of him. So this is what I was telling the President Allende through my friend uh, Jose Tobar, who was the Minister of Defense at the time. 
I said, tell Allende to take some, some, to do something about this. They are going to kill him. This is the intention. Tell him to do something. A compromise or call the generals or finally fire the generals according to the constitution. But the answer from general, from the, the Allende was very clear. Tell Valenzuela that he is not right. I am going to kill my confidence on the generals that we are going to run the country together in peace. This is what I expect, and I am going to meet them uh, very soon to discuss the situation. So forget about uh, uh, taking actions like uh, call to them in retirement. No, I am not going to remove any general, doesn't matter who are there. Yeah. That was Allende's decision. No? Unfortunately, he made the wrong decision. He so, could, he could uh, fire some of the generals implicated. He knew the name of them. And according to the Constitution, just was a, a, a decree of law to just sign a paper and bye-bye. So, but no, yeah. Never did that. So, just re- remind us again, like, how exactly did you have advanced knowledge that this, this coup was taking go- oh, about to take place? Well, as I, as I said before, I was attached to the Air Force. I belonged to the Air Force even mm-hmm. when I was for long years in a new career in the police force. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to a classmate of mine. I was talking to exactly the pilots who were doing the bombing. They were my classmates, my friends, uh, since we were young cadets. <laughs> So they told me everything, believing that I was supporting them. No? Mm-hmm. They never realized that I was so, uh, supporting, admiring Allende. I couldn't demonstrate that. I, I couldn't belong to political parties, of course. So they were wrong. I was admiring Allende for a long time because I knew who he was. Did you have, like, actual encounters with Allende? You met him in person and uh, discussed things? Actually, no. No? <laughs> you know, the reason Allende, uh, as I said, I was belonging, belonging to the uh, investigation police. Allende was never friendly to police, to the investigation police. When he was young, when he was... Uh, very active, he had some trouble with the police. He never forgot that. I was told about that. So we were talking a few times only about uh, uh, the police matters, my duties. For example, when uh, some uh, visitors arrived in Chile, like Fidel Castro and many others, he was telling me only briefly what was my duty, my responsibility to look after the security of the visitors and the nationals. Uh, he never recognized that I was one of the guys who saved his life when he was uh, under the, the situation of the conspiracy against him. As soon as he took over the government, there was a conspiracy in Viña del Mar and Valparaíso 
from the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army in order to kill him when he went to visit the port uh, in a friendly visit, but they were prepare, preparing everything just to assassinate him. Yeah. I was told about that by a, a commander of the Air Force who trusts me wrongly. Hmm. He didn't know that I was for Allende. What? He, what do you suppose was happening to the military that, uh, they, that there's, I mean, I guess, kind of uh, forces that are developing a, an affection for Pinochet? Is that something that you could sort of see but, from the... By, by that time, no, they didn't have much support for Pinochet. Pinochet was appointed as uh, commander-in-chief of the army at the last moment when General Pratt, the constitutional good man, he quit. When he saw that the situation was so bad, he quit to avoid civil war. So, uh, at that time, Pinochet was not important at all. No, was the, the Navy man and the Air Force man who were running the show to kill uh, the president and to perform something like the military coup. No, no, eh, no, eh, this man, eh, the Pinochet. Yeah. Pinochet joined them at the last moment. No, they are force eh, commander in chief who was one of my instructors when I was flying plane. He told Allende, Sorry, he told uh, Pinochet, you have to join us. This is the last time we tell you that. And General Arellano said the same thing. General Pinochet, you have to be with us, say yes or not. So only a few days before, Pinochet agreed to be and to participate and to be part of the junta to uh, eliminate Allende forever. So, uh, in this situation, you can see the army forces were not united before. The, the Navy and the Air Force were strongly organized long time before, organizing the coup, no, no Pinochet. Pinochet was pretending to be loyal to Allende. The night before of the coup, he promised Allende loyalty. And Allende believed that. And uh, this is why Allende said, okay, they compromise. I am going to call for a plebiscite. So let the Chilean people decide to have peace and to continue uh, with the, the support of the army forces. This is what was told uh, between them the night before of the coup. Well, you can see the treason was clear from them. Mm. And I knew for another, another source, I have a relative of mine working in the uh, American embassy. She was a, a, a cousin of mine, and she was an interpreter there, Spanish-speaking, in the embassy. So I knew what is going on in the em at the embassy, the American embassy when many people from the CIA arrived and high-rank officers 
of the United States arrived and all what is going on there in the embassy. I was told about that by that, that woman. So I have good information for the president. I tried to save him, but that was, that was yeah. beyond my power. Yeah. Too bad. So, uh, like, Ali, like, there was so, so much pressure from the United States, uh, apparently, uh, on, uh, on basically helping to shape this operation. And that goes, uh, that, like, has, is there, like, a larger awareness of the Chilean people of that, that sort of, uh, you know, schism where, where the United States is involved? I mean, I guess going back to yeah, Kissinger, correct, I think? Correct. You know something? I was informed also, because my position in the police uh, allow me to know many things. I have many contacts, many people everywhere. Uh, I was in charge of the political police too, and I was told uh, a few days before the coup, a small fleet, the four, the fourth fleet of the United States, who was uh, in El Callao in Peru, they sent um, a few units warships to Valparaíso, Valparaíso in Chile, just to protect the coup in case something was wrong. Another information I received uh, on, uh, in Mendoza, in Argentina, close to Santiago, of course, across the Andes, you know, uh, one squadron of uh, uh, Air Force, United States Air Force, one squadron of bombers arrived in Mendoza uh, pretending to be in a friendly visitors, visit to Argentina, nothing else. They were there in case the coup failed in order to cross the Andes and bomb Santiago and bomb the palace and kill the end. So United States was very, very involved uh, in the last details that the coup should be successful. Mm. So you're, you you were spoke, speaking very fondly of, of Allende and uh, like what you know the, the force that the United States was involved in, in trying to overthrow I, them is that, I, that somewhat yeah. reminds me of, of actually the the, the Cuban uh, situation where they they got Castro and they they've been at war with them ever since is. Is, is Allende, in your view, kind of like uh, another version of, of Castro, uh, that, that he's uh, going to be a, is he, by, by serving the people, he's going to be a thorn in the side of the people like that? Or? Well, very well. And you know something? Uh, when Fidel Castro was visiting Allende before, long before the coup, uh, he advised him about to get smart and not to believe the military people. He said, they are not uh, the military that I have after the revolution in Cuba. They are different people with different mentality, and they belong to the aristocracy of Chile. They belong to the uh, uh, upper class. Don't trust them. Well, I don't know if Allende pay attention to Fidel Castro, but he was advised not to trust those people. And he never pay attention to that. I feel sorry for that. Mm. So it's the the twentieth, sorry, the 
50th anniversary of, of the coup d'etat, and uh, you're uh, here in Winnipeg. They will be uh, commemorating it on September 11th uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. at, uh, at, a, at, a, at a place in... Uh, in uh, Franco Manitoba, Franco, Franco Manitoba, yeah. that, in Uvel Avenue, I think. Yeah. So, I'll. Uh, I don't know if if you want to say a little bit more or, uh, about uh, you know what what's going to be happening and uh, how the uh, the event. Yes, the Centre Cultural Franco Manitoba, three forty Provence Boulevard. Correct. Thank you. Correct. Excellent place to have this event. Yeah, well, what's going to be happening? Lot of, lot of, uh, well, you know, I would like to ask my friend Bernardo, who is the organizer of the event, to approach to the microphone and explain a little bit about that. Bernardo Jorquera, is it? Yeah, my name is Bernardo Jorquera. We have a committee that belongs to the Winnipeg Chilean Association. And we have already one event at the Museum of Human Rights, and this is the second one taking place September 11. That is the day where the coup took place in Chile. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's good, and uh, yeah, well, it's, it's free and open to the public, and uh, yeah, it's free to open to the public. Uh, we want to have some uh, visitors, some music. And you can learn something about what happened in Chile. Yeah, we are commemorating this for the people who suffered there. There are many, many of us came here because there was no other way to survive in Chile. <laughs> Not only because there was no work, but <laughs> you were, uh, it was very difficult uh, to live in Chile at that time. We also... we. We want to commemorate that democracy, we have to conserve democracy in the world and also the human right in the world. It's very important to to survive. Nobody would like to have a coup like Pinochet, you know, <laughs> where many people were tortured, killed, and put all Chile <laughs> upside down there. Yeah. Unfortunately, many people, young people, they grew up with Pinochet. And, well, some think that he uh, was a good guy because that they were trying to teach in the school at that time. But uh, in, in Chile right now, they are commemorating in oh, dozens of places. And even the president of Chile is commemorating the 50 years because they know what what how terrible to live with a, with a dictatorship like Pinochet. <laughs> okay, well, I think you've uh, you the two of you have uh, really presented in a way that's uh, conspire like uh, the future generation of of Chileans and Chilean Canadians who who weren't around fifty years ago and then seeing what was lost. You'll remind them of um, something and maybe you can reinvigorate it as we look forward to, or looking ahead to possible coups in uh, in uh, not Chile but uh, Peru and uh, other uh, geopolitical uh, dynamics playing out in Latin America and around the world. Uh, uh, Francisco and uh, Bernardo, I want to thank you for, for joining us and uh, I will look forward to seeing you on the 11th. Well, I hope to. 
and we would like to thank all the people that helped the Chilean to come here to here. And also, I want them to understand why we are here as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, this is the opportunity to invite all Canadians, friends, to attend to this event in the Franco-Manitoba, because this is a way to inform them what happened. And we had to destroy the strong propaganda from the United States and other sources that they don't want to celebrate or they don't want to remember what happened in Chile because of the multinational business are connected to the propaganda of the right-wing and conservative people from Chile and from the United States. Uh, to finish this, I can just mention that uh, the United States is not going to give up. They are going to continue trying to avoid any leftist government in Chile. Not only that, nothing, nothing leftist in the Americas. According to their doctrine, America belongs to the United States for the grace of God. This is what they say in the United States. So, my friends, I am very happy that I have the opportunity to mention what, what was the reality in Chile. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The Surlac Resource Centre on York campus in Toronto is the location of the entirety of stories and documents presented in the book Canada Chile Solidarity 1973 to 1990 Testimonies of Civil Society Action. It speaks to well organized and coordinated civil society actions within Canada in the formulation of public policy, especially with regard to refugees and dealing with dictatorships. It also speaks to the significance of refugee and exile community contributions to Canadian society. The academic who edited these uh, documents for the book is Lisa North. And Lisa L. North is Emeritus Professor of Politics at York, Uni York University in Toronto. And she's made many important contributions as a teacher, a researcher of rural conflicts, and as a, a social movements in Latin America, and as an analyst of Canadian foreign policy toward the region as a social activist. Uh, Lisa North, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. What can you say about how these solidarity groups originated? How was this the, the connection between the Canadians and Chileans formed? Well, the reason why Canadians responded so rapidly to the events in Chile, to the military takeover, uh, comes precisely out of the fact that long-standing relationships had been built between Canadian institutions and Chilean institutions. And one of the most important institutions uh, with a long, long-standing relationship going back decades uh, 
with the Christian churches. So they, uh, and particularly in Quebec. So, uh, and Quebec solidarity, of course, was really, really deep rooted, uh, as was the rest of Canada. But uh, uh, it cannot be understood without knowing uh, that uh, there were important relationships, uh, uh, missionary relationships uh, between various Christian churches uh, and uh, uh, Chile's churches uh, that dated back a long time. So people knew each other. They could trust each other. Huh? Uh, Canadians could trust the information huh, that was being sent huh, from Chile. Um, even people who we think of as secular, huh, not necessarily religious, huh? a woman by the name of Florita Con, uh, she was living in Chile at the time, and she was uh, a person who lived very, very close uh, to one of the industrial districts uh, where the Air Force bombed uh, factories and uh, the military came in to take over factories. Uh, and she was uh, on CBC as it happens. The first voice about what was going on in Chile at that moment in 1973 was Flori Chacon. Now, Flori had actually gone to uh, to uh, Chile because she married a Chilean, and they actually met at a church uh, uh, summer camp or something like that. <laughs> and if I remember right, huh, they met at this camp in uh, in Manitoba, somewhere in Manitoba. So uh, that that's a kind of an exoteric example, but it's one of the many different kinds of examples of people who had relationships uh, uh, in Chile or were Canadians living in Chile. Uh, so, yes, uh, the churches were one. Huh? But you have to remember that the Social Democratic Party of Canada, the New Democratic Party, is a member of the Socialist International and the Socialist International um, uh, uh, was supportive of Allende's government. And people from the political parties that were members of the Socialist International, including the Socialist Party of Chile, to which Allende belonged, would have been meeting each other at these international conventions uh, that they have uh, periodically. And similarly, uh, union organizations uh, were also uh, uh, very, very active. Uh, so we have the churches, uh, we have uh, uh, unions, uh, um, uh, we have, uh, and 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 we have also uh, academics. Uh, so when the Chileans arrived, uh, quite a few of them uh, were. Uh, people who had been teaching at uh, various Chilean universities uh, and efforts were made uh, to integrate them uh, as quickly as possible into Canadian universities and Canadian graduate programs. Uh, and consequently, uh, very quickly after the first arrivals, uh, there was uh, even uh, densification, uh, a greater density of relationships that was created by the Chileans themselves. Uh, so, yes. People had lots of connections. Well, people may have the impression that uh, 
the Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau was sympathetic to the the left wing socialist government, but but he really wasn't, was he? I mean, what kind of a, a challenge did solidarity groups confront with the Trudeau Liberals? I mean, were there any tensions in there? Um, yes, uh, there, there were t- tensions with the government, uh, but the government was actually a minority government. So it was also dependent on the NDP. Uh, so we have to look at the political context of the time. Mm. Now, what happened was that the Chilean, excuse me, the Canadian ambassador to Chile uh, was, it's difficult to choose the words. Let's say that he did not object to the coup. He saw it uh, as uh, uh, the outcome huh, of political conflicts and he expected the military to stay in power only shortly and to organize elections uh, and bring Chile back uh, to what might be called normalcy, normal democratic government. So the information that Ottawa's was Ottawa was getting from Chile was sympathetic to the junta. And 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 that distorted and the ambassador really distorted huh, what was going on. He said there was exaggeration about the repression. Um uh uh he thought normalcy would return sometime very, very soon, huh? So forth and so on. So so we had the uh, we had the uh, distorted information or the government had distorted information coming from Chile. Um but uh, um uh Bob Thompson, I can't remember what was his uh, uh his actual position, huh? Uh, in in the government at the time, but Bob Thompson uh, was a person who was the whistleblower of the time. He gave the information about the ambassador's uh, cables, uh, or actually gave the cables themselves uh, to an NDP um, uh, member of parliament, and the information got out. So there was a great, great scandal, huh? And of course, uh, there was conflict in the in the newspapers uh, about. Uh, uh, well, again, there was being accused of being a Soviet sympathizer and uh, and and uh, Canadian. Some Canadians uh, said, "Okay, we don't want any of these Chileans here because they're terrorists. Uh, uh, they 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 uh, don't value huh, democracy, so forth and so on." Um, but uh, the churches with their own information, the unions with their own information, the NDP with their own you know, independent information of what was going on, were largely able to counteract that. Huh? And little by little, huh, Canadian uh, policy huh, toward the admission of refugees huh, uh, moved, moved forward. Huh? And quite a few refugees were finally accepted. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think 7,000 7, over the, the next uh, 15 years or 17 years is what I heard. But yeah. There are people who went well, to the, 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 the problem is that, that there's more, more people than that who came. So then the question becomes, uh, uh, who came under the refugee 
category and who who came under immigrant category yeah you know so about many of the people who were immigrants huh, were also refugees in one way or another so so it's uh, actually uh, uh, having a number a precise number is a little bit more tricky than it looks huh? yeah well maybe give us an example of how you know when when with you know, a rush of people coming to Canada. How how did the churches and the unions go to work at uh, at, at organizing these? Uh, I guess you know paths of solidarity and and and, and different other actions that uh, you know helped the uh, the people that they could from Canada. Well, well, uh, first of all, you have to remember huh, that the churches are very well linked. You know, so if you look at the United Church of Canada, huh, there are churches uh, all over the country. Huh? If you look at the Catholic Church of Canada, huh, uh, they uh, they they have churches all over Canada. You know, so we have huh, uh, uh, institutions with linkages right across the country, right across the country. Yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, the union organizations, of course, uh, and the NDP, we're, we're talking about national organizations. Uh? So when we're talking about solidarity being organized uh, uh, and being supported uh, by churches, unions, uh, 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 universities, uh, uh, political parties, uh, uh, we're, we're talking uh, about national organizations. Uh? And these national organizations, uh, there are letters huh, that are, that are in this uh, are in the book huh, uh, uh, that are reproduced huh, letters huh, of exchanges of inf uh, information and uh, and advocacy letters between the churches huh, and the Canadian government, huh, the Ministry of Manpower and Immigration, huh, the, which is what it was called huh, at the time. Huh. So. Uh, uh, so the most pr prominent clerics, uh, church officials in Canada, were involved in exchanges with the Canadian government, in direct exchanges with the Canadian government uh, about the policies uh, that Canada should be pursuing uh, to support refugees, but not only support refugees, the Canadians organized a very, very unique program uh, going into the coup, you know, I think it was in the second year, where a release of prisoners program huh, was organized. So uh, the Canadian government uh, agreed huh, to support a program huh, uh, largely organized by the churches. One of the persons who was involved huh, in uh, in uh, the management of that program and traveled uh, to Chile uh, in order to uh, uh, convince uh, the regime. Well, uh, the regime already had been convinced, uh, but um, uh, to uh, help make the choice of families uh, that would be brought under the prisoner exchange program. Uh, this was a speech that George Cram gave in 2013 about the program, wow. uh, and it's reproduced here, the prisoner exchange program. Huh? Um, uh, so anyway, uh, he writes 
I'll, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs because they're very dramatic. Huh? Sure. And this was delivered uh, at, a, at the 40th anniversary of remembrance of the coup um, in, um, of, uh, back in 2013. So George Cram writes, the murderous coup of September 11th, 1973 created chaos in the streets of Chile. I don't need to tell you what was going on. Bodies in the river flowing through Santiago, people held in detention at the National Stadium, atrocities at the highest level, and a shocked and stunned international community. Um, okay, the telephone lines began to buzz between solidarity groups in Chile and solidarity groups in Canada and elsewhere. Canada is a country of immigration, they said. Why don't you accept uh, to take some and indicate uh, that you know the people in jail are political prisoners and not common criminals? Now, Pinochet released these people under the, uh, under the uh, uh, title of common criminals. But these were people who were political, huh? Um, prisoners. And Cram goes on to say, in Montreal and Toronto, as well as Santiago and Geneva, Canadians concerned about what was going on in Chile began to discuss whether such a response was possible. Then a meeting was arranged with the Minister of Immigration by a small group of persons who had put together a proposal. Mm. Essentially, the intent was to grant visas to a small but significant size group of political prisoners who could come to Canada and be the symbol to the world that the Pinochet regime was lying. Church organizations in Canada and Chile were prepared to support the Canadian government in such a venture. Hmm. And so we have a, a description huh, in George Cram's own words in the book huh, about huh, how the program was organized and how he went to Chile and uh, the kind of support that he had uh, in Chile and uh, in in Canada uh, for for this initiative uh, of bringing prisoners uh, to uh, getting pris people released from prison and bringing them to Canada. And of course, they, they sought the release of those people who were in greatest danger in yeah. in Chile. Could you maybe uh, just talk about um, maybe one, one of the more dynamic acts of leadership in the book uh, within these solidarity initiatives that it really hammers at home for our listeners? Um, well, uh, it's, I think that this is Many. a really, really important act. <laughs> you know, sure. the prisoners program, huh? Because they brought it, brought fifty the families of fifty prisoners huh, to Canada. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, so people imagine today trying to get fifty prisoners out of the uh, out of Afghanistan. Mm. There, there are people huh, who are in Afghanistan who are seeking to come huh, to Canada, um, and finding it extremely extremely difficult to to make the connections, huh? um. But we're certainly not talking about 
getting people released from prison, getting the most prominent uh, women uh, or, uh, or, or male leaders uh, released from prison. Um, with regard to dramatic actions, uh, um, the churches took, took out uh, with the unions uh, and political uh, people, took out full page ads in the Globe and Mail or the Hamilton Star. Well, not maybe not full page, uh, but half page ads uh, uh, that would be signed by 750 people. Mm. Um, well, uh, the campaigns to admit refugees. Uh, there was a paid advertisement uh, in the Global Mail of December 1st, 1973, sponsored by the Canadian Fund for Refugees from Chile and the Can Canadian Council of Churches. Uh, and uh, uh, what are they saying? Canada, act now to save lives. The brutal coup against democracy in Chile has become a reign of terror. Systematic repression, searches, interrogations, arrests, disappearances, torture, executions are an everyday fact of life. Workers are fired, students are expelled, teachers dismissed. Teaching public health is considered a subversive activity. Um, and then many Chileans want to come to Canada. They, it talks about the extreme danger. Um, and then uh, uh, advocates uh, for admission of refugees. So we asked the government of Canada to waive immigration procedures in an immediate humanitarian act to provide refuge for these people in Canada. We appeal to the government uh, to instruct the embassy in Santiago to take the initiative uh, uh, to free and protect uh, uh, those trapped in prison. We ask that Canadian university schools and employers respond to this emergency as we have in many cases before with jobs, tuition, homes, and support for these refugees. Uh, um, and then they also appeal to uh, for uh, donations to the Canadian fund uh, uh, for refugees from Chile, which was administered uh, by the Canadian Council of Churches. Okay. You know, so, uh, so uh, 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 and that campaign raised uh, a lot of funding, a lot of funding uh, okay. for, for continuing uh, solidarity activities. Uh, well, it and, seems like... And yeah. at the same yeah, it seems as if like reading through this book will just really give you a sense of like the power of civil society activism and uh, and how it could inform the public uh, today as there are new coups taking place. I mean, perhaps Peru and, uh, you know, other places around the world where, where similar sorts of actions are taking place. Um, I, I was wondering if you could just maybe uh, you know, finish off with a few comments about uh, the, the value of this work on uh, coming out on, on the 50th anniversary of September 11th and, and what, in a broad scheme, we will will learn from it. Okay. Former um, Well, you'll learn a great deal from it. Um, there. There is a section, the first section of the book is on uh, the immediate reactions uh, to, the, uh, to the coup d'etat. And, and those are really, really interesting. 
um, because uh, the first action that I could find was on September 12th. And it was a mass organized at a church, at a university campus in, in Saskatchewan. You know, so it, it, this gives you huh, uh, a, a picture of how different groups that had established connections in one way or another with Chile took the initiative of acting immediately to protest the coup d'etat. So the first section of the book is on the immediate reactions of the, to the coup. And the first organized action that I could find huh, was this mass that was held huh, uh, at a Catholic church huh, in, in Saskatchewan. The second section deals with the campaigns to admit refugees, um, exiles, uh, and, uh, and political, uh, uh, political prisoners. And there, again, you hear the voices of the people who were involved uh, in organizing. Uh, there was a really, really interesting organization that was probably the first uh, anti-mining activist group uh, in Canada. We hear about mining conflicts today, but in fact, uh, the churches were looking uh, at mining issues uh, um, and the unions uh, um, and parties were looking at mining issues uh, back in the 70s. When the, when the Chileans arrived, these were very well-educated people very often and with the capacity to start establishing connections. And the amazing thing is that within a year or two of their arrival, the Chileans organized their own journals you know, they had newspapers uh, for the community in Vancouver, uh, in uh, uh, in Edmonton, uh, Winnipeg, uh, Toronto, uh, Quebec City, uh, Montreal, uh, a, a very, very large number of newspapers. Uh, and there, in those newspapers, you find their reactions to living in Canada living in a consumer society, living in a society very different from the one that they had left and the political project huh, of socialism huh, that they had left behind. So so I uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, some uh, fellow researchers huh, identified huh, uh, uh, excerpts huh, from those uh, um, uh, early huh, reactions uh, in, from the journals uh, uh, that they uh, that the Chileans themselves established uh, and published uh. and then in the last section we have seven people who write about how uh, their experiences of becoming Canadian in one way or another huh um, so these are remarkable people, uh, some are university professors, other psychiatrists, uh, uh, people who have worked uh, with the, uh, important institutions in this country. And the last essay, the concluding essay, is about an unfinished agenda. Um, in the context, that, especially now in the context of everything that's being revealed about residential schools, it's remarkable to find that 
the Interjurist Committee on Human Rights in Chile organized a mission to the Mapuche indigenous territory uh, in, in Chile uh, in 1979. So the, the churches were involved uh, in the defense of the rights of indigenous people in Chile. And that particular concluding essay is written by a Chilean uh, professor at, um, uh, uh, at the former Ryerson, huh? um, Toronto Metropolitan University, TMU. And she wrote the essay with a Mapuche student huh? who's a doctoral candidate. Huh? Um, now, the amazing thing also about this is that one of the most distinguished thing, distinguished of Canadian indigenous leaders, George Manuel, huh, was involved huh, in founding the International Council you know, of Churches and who was uh, involved in founding huh, the Assembly of First Nations, participated in that church-led mission back in 1979. Okay. So there are, there are surprises in a book. Uh, uh, the, and and you you get the uh, the the texture uh, because uh, it's a reproduction. It's uh, we have introductions, we have interpretations, we have introductions to sections of documents, but two thirds of it, maybe a little bit more than that, huh, is actually the reproduction of documents. So what you're hearing are the voices of the people at the time that these events are taking place. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's very very unique. We don't have, well, we do have some reflections from uh, about what was happening that were published in 2013 or later on. But they're, uh, but they're all reflections by people who were involved in those events. Thank you so much for. This is, yeah, I, this is something that you're not going to get anywhere else. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so thank you very much for presenting on our show. We really appreciate having you here. Uh, you're welcome. Huh? Uh, Lisa L. North is Emeritus Professor of Politics at York University in Toronto and editor of the book you've just been hearing about, Canada-Chile Solidarity 1973-1990, Testimonies of Civil Society Action. That's the end of our show. Next week, we will explore the current narratives around the wildfires which have ravaged the world and whether there is a culprit to blame besides too much CO2. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.